Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a podcast from Global Council. My name's Conan Darcy. I am your regular host and a senior practice director at GC. This is the latest in our In Conversation series with the leading thinkers in the global tech, media and gaming sectors. And I'm thrilled this week to be joined by Joe Twist. Joe has been CEO of UK Interactive Entertainment for a decade. UKIE are the trade association representing the video games industry in the UK. Prior to this, Joe worked across the media industry and in think tanks, including at British broadcasters Channel 4 and the BBC, as well as the leading UK think tank IPPR. So Joe, thank you very much for joining uh, today. Really looking forward to uh, talking all things gaming policy and regulation today. So I hope you're uh, you're excited at the prospect too. Um, and it's no uh, no surprise that that's that's where we're going to focus. And particularly, I want to take a sort of more a forward looking approach uh, as we see this growing momentum behind the so called metaverse, where gaming really seems to be coming front and center, both in industry conversations, but also in the policy conversations which which follow. So. I'm going to give you my starting point, Joe, and you may not agree with this characterization, uh, so I'll let you disagree with it. But this is this is how I would see some of the dynamics around the gaming sector at the moment. As you and your organization will talk about all the time, gaming is a UK success story, but it's often an underappreciated one, one that for a variety of reasons, which you will know better than I, slightly goes under the radar and is eclipsed often unfairly uh, by both the tech sector, but also other parts of entertainment sector. Um, and then we see on the tech side, obviously, big tech. And I'm interested to sort of focus on that interplay a little bit between big tech and the gaming sector. And this idea of the sort of convergence between the two. Now, obviously, there's been some of that happening to date already. But we're seeing a lot of big money acquisitions taking place, Microsoft, Activision being the most obvious. And the expectation is that this will continue as the idea of a metaverse uh, is developed further. So do you agree, well, you take issue with my characterization to start with, but more specifically, do you agree that we're going to see an increasing convergence of big tech or larger tech and the gaming sector? So my answer is always going to be it depends, and it depends how we define these things. So big, big, big tech, I don't know why we call it kind of big tech. I suppose the differences I see between games and, if you like, social media platforms, for instance, like Meta, is that games are very much about fundamentally creating sort of story-driven experiences or fun experiences. It might be puzzle-based, different genres, but about that kind of creativity and using technology to create those experiences, whether that be because it's a particular platform or because you're using AI in procedural generation or whatever it might be. So it's, it's very much that combination of using technology to create these experiences in games. Whereas, you know, I think tech companies, and if you take Meta as an example, it's a platform that expects people to come and do various different things, but there's no real purpose. It's about connecting people. Games are very much something around which you gather, you know, and you might gather people and they might talk to each other. They might connect using technologies, um, but also technology is fundamental to how you actually create that game world or that game experience. So that's how I see the difference. You know, you you, you kind of, and, 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 and platforms, you know, social media platforms they are places where 
you know, you, you, you can be served different kinds of content and different kinds of games. But really, fundamentally, that's not what games are about. Games are about using technology and innovation to create these incredible experiences. So, you know, whether it's going to convert, it is already converging. You know, technology and, and, and storytelling have gone hand in hand um, in the games world uh, forever. If we accept then that premise that it that it is converging, and I suppose when you think of, obviously virtual worlds are not a new thing, but they are going to become uh, an ever-increasing uh, phenomenon as VR uh, takes off on a, on a much wider scale and the, whatever the metaverse becomes, it becomes. The line between social and gaming would seem to blur um, quite considerably uh, to me uh, in a way that it sort of is happening as you say already but maybe the the possibilities for that to happen are, are greater but if that is the case and if we see meta making big bets we see microsoft making a big bet here we see all of the larger tech players making these big bets do you get concerned in your role as the head of the the trade association representing the gaming industry about the future for a vibrant independent gaming sector in the metaverse or do you think it's just going to be what it is now we'll have big platforms providing access and the gaming sector will provide the applications and the virtual worlds and so on that are built within those platforms and we we are overstating the concern well, i think there's plenty of room for everyone if you think about it microsoft has been in the games world for a very long time okay it's not it's not a technology company that's just entered the game space it's been in in, in games um since more or less it started as well you know so it's not a new entrant. I think the, um, the the ecosystem that they're creating around Game Pass and around you know cloud cloud games and and being able to access your titles on any platform is really innovative, really interesting. And it's only a company you know at that scale that has that infrastructure who could do that. But I think it's it's you know I think it's again it's it's so fascinating because we in the games industry use platforms in so many different ways you know i think it's what is really exciting about the games industry compared to other creative industries or other more traditional sectors in which we have many many ways in which audiences players can can access content we always seen people using play and using games as a social connector again it's like you look at old games arcades and that was the way we played games digital electronic games if you like and we would gather around the arcade cabinet. For those of you old enough, like me, to actually remember doing that, it was hugely social, you know. And again, so games have always had that social element, and being able to hang out in these worlds has, has been incredible. I just want to pick up on the way that you sort of framed that question because I think it's interesting that sort of interrogating what we mean by the metaverse and whether it's a singular thing or it's a, a useful metaphor just to hook ideas off of. Whether it's something that is a single you know, the internet is not a single entity, even though Facebook tried to make it a single entity. <laughs> it is not that. Um, it is a, a an interconnected world of information, knowledge and, and human relationships. So, you know, I think um, it, it kind of, I, I think we're going to see more attention on this potential of what people are helpfully or unhelpfully calling the metaverse. I think we should not be technologically deterministic about these things. And what we really need to understand is what is it that we're creating? Let's look at the potential of what you know we have in, in, in the UK in terms of our heritage. 
an experience over the last 45 or so years in game development and look at what the potential um, for that to expand even more so is, you know, because certainly the games industry is very different to a lot of other sectors that we, 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 we should be proud of in the UK. One area that the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, but also DG Competition in Brussels and the FTC in the US are increasingly concerned about is the use of acquisition by whatever we want to call them, big tech, the gaffer, fangs, whatever, large tech companies, um, and how they might be buying up other companies. I think in the UK, there is this sort of particular regret around the acquisition of DeepMind, whether that is a justified regret or not, there is a slight sense that uh, perhaps that shouldn't have happened. And you have the broader, uh, broader famous examples, uh, Facebook buying Instagram, uh, Google buying YouTube and so on and so forth. Um, and you can argue the merits of whether that's the, uh, the right position to hold, but it's certainly where the regulatory consensus almost seems to be. So if I take what you just said and there's sort of room enough for everyone, we've always had some of these companies pretty big like Microsoft in gaming anyway. Is that to say then that actually you don't see this as a major concern and actually fine if the CMA and other competition authorities want to look at it, but it's not a pressing priority for the for the gaming industry. You'll, you'll, you'll see how the market evolves and, and take it from there. I think the very, very exciting thing about the games industry, again, is that we have very few gatekeepers. We have more than 3 billion players globally. We are immediate exporters. So as soon as you make your game available, it's available to the whole world. We don't have the same sorts of restrictions and access, if you like, in terms of getting content to people like a traditional creative industry might have. So I think it, and, and there are so many more potential players that we have not yet reached with different kinds of content. I suppose I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned more about how we continue to create the best kind of environment in a business and regulatory sense with the right kind of targeted support and incentives in place for risky kind of I- kinds of ideas and original IP to be continued to be developed, which I think is, is, is so much about what characterizes the UK's strengths in storytelling and particularly in games. So for me, it's more about creative diversity and ensuring that we are incentivizing um, stories to be told and companies to tell those stories in ways that, that, that we haven't seen before. You know, we, we are not a sector that relies on public funding. We don't have the equivalent of the BBC or Channel 4. We don't have the equivalent of British Film Institute um, with the funding uh, it, 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 it offers to support indie filmmakers. We've managed to be really successful globally because there is still demand and because we continue to to innovate. So you know, I'm not a regulator, I am not the CMA, but I do know that this ecosystem is really healthy and the barriers to accessing different audiences, the barriers for audiences accessing different kinds of content are so low compared to other industries or other sectors. Okay, I want to return to your view on the broader UK regulatory strategy and what you think the government should be doing. We obviously are speaking at a time of immense turmoil in uh, British politics, as we were talking about before we started recording. The Conservative Party conference is going on at the moment. Um, 
but we'll come back to that. I just want to stick before we do just on that theme of this and whether you, <laughs> you may not be so keen on it as I am, but this idea of convergence and, um, and the overlap between tech sector and gaming, it's not obvious where one, one stops and the other begins, particularly on the idea of content moderation. Now we've got this online safety bill in the UK, you've got the Digital Services Act in the EU, we have the idea that there needs to be a set of rules governing how user-generated content is uploaded on the internet. The gaming sector has often found itself lumped in with a similar set of rules that are being applied to social media. And I just wanted to, impression I've always had, and I want to pick your brain on this, is that the gaming industry seems to me a little bit of a victim or collateral damage of what others would deem as the bad behavior of the tech sector. And that social, what's, what is happening on social media, we saw the Molly Russell case uh, last week, it seems to be sort of setting the regulatory tone for a much wider set of companies, not just, uh, not just gaming, maybe also dating sites and so on. So, I mean, do you think, do you agree with that? And do you think a greater regulatory distinction should be drawn between the different types of companies? I think it's a very, very difficult one, isn't it? And we aren't yet to see the... Um you know, outcome of the, you know, what, what happens to the online safety bill. And we're still waiting for a lot of clarity, as all sectors are, on scope and criteria and so on. I do think in our conversations, we are held in very high regard and very, very much as industry leaders in terms of community and how we understand community. We don't even call it moderation. We have huge teams of community managers who deal with and talk to the players every day. We have so many examples of, of development and uh, publishing companies who completely, you know, we, we rely on the community to co-develop new features or new ideas or to drop features. So we have a very different relationship with our, we don't even say users or consumers, we say players and community than a lot of tech companies do have. And we also monetize in completely different ways. We are not interested in collecting data about people if it's not necessary because we have so many different business models. So we don't need to monetize attention in the same way as I would say quite a lot of other tech-related companies might do. We have a different relationship. We hopefully will get some more clarity in the coming weeks about the online safety bill, but we're certainly held up in high regard as a good example of how you can combine human and technological uh, intelligence, such as AI and semantic analysis, to help protect communities, to keep people safe, because ultimately we live and die by our communities. You know, there is so much choice of games to play and worlds to be in. Whereas if your friends are all on, on one particular social media platform, if they, if they leave, you go with them. There's not a great deal of choice compared to the different kinds of games that you go to with your friends so we we want to be able to you know we're in the industry of fun and entertainment <laughs> we want people to have fun <laughs> and be entertained you know and be protected and feel safe that's what you know a healthy community should be yeah i'm interested in that sort of emphasis on community and sort of away from this talk of, of content moderation i mean one thing that uh i read your enemy uh interview uh, and it, I was really struck in that, uh, just on this topic of whatever we call it, moderation or otherwise, really struck by your comment about being interested 20 years ago in, in chat rooms and bulletin mm. boards. It's quite interesting because I brought up chat rooms 
the other week to colleagues here uh, who are younger than I am and, and they looked a bit blankly at me and didn't really understand what they were but <laughs> forgetting that for a second I at the time I remember that a lot of those chat rooms the big fit you never knew who you were talking to uh, and it was a lot of creative a lot of fun we would have particularly a teenager just the internet's just started but there was also that sort of who, who is this person and also you know if you're a cheeky teenager you're impersonating people who you probably shouldn't surely that's it if we think about vr and games happening in vr and avatars is that not a little bit like this but on steroids and are they not if we take this a little bit more seriously than i've just presented it those issues around say grooming or people being abusive and difficult in certain ways and developing certain toxic behaviors online is that not more sort of almost on steroids, we were sort of saw to some extent in chat rooms or even at the bottom of newspaper articles sometimes. Is, is that not yeah. a concern that you have? It is because as society, we have completely misjudged the internet. We have completely forgotten how to teach humans to be human. We have just assumed that just because it happens behind a screen, it's not real. It is. And when you say I was interested in chat I did my PhD, I spent three years doing ethnography on um, chat rooms, <laughs> essentially. So it was it was a labor of love. Um, <laughs> and I got rewarded with a doctorate at the end of it. But, you know, it was in those early days. And what I was mainly looking at was the fact that humans never really change, ultimately. And um, good functioning communities um, can self-regulate really well. And but so long as you give them the tools and the understanding and the knowledge and the know-how in how to self-regulate and how to protect each other and how to protect yourself. So we didn't really talk about or have online safety lessons for children at a young age. We still don't really. You know, I think it's uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, lessons on how to just be a, a decent citizen aren't really taught because teachers are really struggling with the amount of admin, with the amount of, of workload, the pressures that are on them. Um, but I do think that that's where we need to focus. You know, we need to make sure that, that people have the tools in the same way as you equipped children and young people to learn how to cross the road safely. They learn how to do things in the physical world because we teach them how to keep themselves safe. We should do entirely the same thing online. Um, and I think we were completely behind the behind the curve as a society globally, not just in the UK, um, in the 90s about this. You know, the Internet is a wonderful place in which people uh, can find out about themselves, can test out different identities, can, especially as you're growing up. You know, you sort of mentioned pretending to be someone else uh, in chat rooms. Well, actually, you can reframe that as testing the waters of your identity, testing boundaries, which essentially is what play is, which essentially is how we learn to be human. So, you know, I think for me, it's very much, it's always been about equipping people, helping people to make informed choices, helping people to understand how to protect themselves. Now, what I think is a great shame is in my interactions, I am now feeling like that old person um, 25 years later, <laughs> Nothing much has changed in terms of how humans interact online. And, you know, so we should learn the lessons from games companies, learn the techniques and the lessons that we learned from Second Life, which I was a heavy user of in the mid 2000s, you know, and, 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 and MSN chat rooms and all of that. 
And it's like, yeah, we, we should be putting in these measures and remembering that people want safety boundaries. They want to be able to block. They want to be able to report. They want to be able to control the space in which they want to, 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 to play in or have fun in. So I think what happens, what I see is that people have forgotten that stuff to a certain extent. Not everyone, but when we're creating these new worlds that we might call the metaverse, we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're insisting on these spaces being civil spaces and therefore giving people the tools to make them civil spaces. Joe, we have talked around it quite a lot, but let's get into <laughs> the metaverse. Um, you took a took umbrage a little bit earlier when I, when I mentioned it and sort of said you weren't quite sure how we define it, this, that, and the other. And surely, I mean, I'd be interested in how you just to reiterate how you you think about it. I mean, you've, you've used the term the internet quite a lot, and I wonder if your view is that the metaverse is essentially the next evolution of the internet, or you know, it's already sort of here. But surely the significance of the metaverse depends on what AR or VR technology becomes. So in the sense that, is it going to be, is, is a VR headset essentially the next games console, or is it the next smartphone? Because that uptake... And the scale of that uptake will determine the extent to which there needs to be bespoke regulatory and policy approaches towards that um, or not. Well, I think it's like saying that the internet, and, and we did say this in the old days, the internet internet is a computer thing. <laughs> it's not. That the computer just happened to be the interface through which we uh, got online. And then there were lots of other different ways in which we could access what we call the internet. So it used to make me chuckle because I used to be quite, well, I am still quite annoying, but I used to ask annoying questions like when you talk about um, online, do you mean, and, and this is literally only about 10 or 15 years ago. Like for me, online was also through these phones devices that we had that were not quite the sort of smart devices that we had, but we did go online you can go online and were able to go online from a very early stage through your games console. But people, <clears throat> particularly regulators, only thought of online as through the computer, right? The internet was through the computer. So it's a bit like that when we're talking about the metaverse. To me, the metaverse is not a singular place, nor should it be, because again, that was walled garden, AOL, um, sort of nightmare experience of the early days of the internet. It is, to a certain extent, the next generation of the internet. I do think it, it is very much so the next generation of the internet, but it's about persistence. It has certain characteristics, the idea of the metaverse or metaverses, like digital persistence, being able to jump in and jump out. In the early days of the lockdown, I remember Clubhouse being a massive thing that you know was only available on iOS, but <laughs> you had to wait for an invite. And... You know, I really, it's completely disappeared now, but I, I mean, it's not disappeared. It's probably still there, but it, it, for me, I used to describe it to people as like an audio version of the metaverse because you could, it was, you knew that there were always conversations and things happening there and you could just tune in and tune out, jump in, jump out. To me, that's one of the characteristics of, it's not just me. We know that that is one of the characteristics of what we're talking about, whether we call it the metaverse or not. Another characteristic that people talk about is interoperability. So being able to take a digital asset from one world to another world, to another world, to another world. Now, that's all well and good. What's the point? 
is, is always my, my question. Why would you do that? There may well be a point to that, but what's, what, how's that going to enhance my experience? I think we have to be very careful not to fall into the same traps of exclusion that we have fallen into again previously with the, the, the internet and the World Wide Web, if you want. Um, so, you know, what about people? You know, for me, a lot of potential of this concept of the metaverse is around including people who might be excluded from economic participation or excluded from the way in which we've set up society to be about actually you, ha- you mainly have to be able-bodied to navigate around a busy city. That's just not acceptable. You know, it locks people out of participating in society or civic society or the economy in different ways. So if we are relying on people to access the internet purely, uh, sorry, access the metaverse purely through a headset, purely using, you know, that sort of as a, as a reference, as a spatial kind of world, then it's going to exclude a whole bunch of people. And that to me is not the potential of the metaverse that we should be building. So I think we we you know we've waited a long time, and I mean more than twenty years for VR to be viable, and I think it's almost there. You know, in the same way that I spent years as a tech journalist writing about the next model of the mobile phone, you know, and waiting for it, and then it got smaller and smaller until it became impractical, and then it got bigger and bigger again. You know, so I, I think that. Um, I think VR and AR are integral building blocks and parts of how we access different experiences and what we call the metaverse. I think it offers so much potential, particularly for people with different accessibility needs. I think that kind of way of immersing yourself in in, in the metaverse is incredibly interesting to overcome geographical barriers. Um, does it overcome financial barriers to participation? Does it overcome or include people with all kinds of accessibility needs, I'm not sure. If we think about that from the get-go, we'll be in a far better place. And competitively in the UK, if we start really creating what we want the metaverse to be in that in that way, we're going to be global leaders. The image or the underlying message in what you're saying there is quite a positive one of the metaverse in the sense that one of the big problems is that not everyone will be able to get a piece of it. Mm. Um, and I'm not talking about a piece of you know, a parcel of virtual world land. I'm talking about you know, actually getting access to it. But the the problem we're going to find, isn't it, that particularly after Meta had their big rebrand last year and the way in which that company and their CEO is now intrinsically linked to the concept of a metaverse in people's minds, that government politicians and regulators, many of whom won't understand what the metaverse concept uh, means, not that any of us really do, but <laughs> they will see it in a more negative way. Um, and the, the, the experience of the consumer internet and mobile revolutions has been that regulation has been quite slow in following the technological developments. And a little bit like what we talked about competition earlier, there's a certain sense of regret that governments and regulators didn't move earlier. And I would bet money that this time round, there will be a resolve to intervene earlier than there was in the heyday in the 2000s and early 2010s for Facebook, Google and others. Do you, does that worry you that when you talk about 
the metaverse in a positive sense that we're going to see some quite clunky interventions from regulators that might narrow the scope for that creativity and for the other benefits that you might see, not just for the gaming industry, but more broadly for society from the metaverse? I, de- I think, again, it depends on what kind of clunky interventions we, we, we might anticipate. It is always a real challenge for regulators to keep up with very, very fast-changing technologies. Um, I think, you know, you can't really regulate for technology, but you can regulate potentially for human behavior. I don't know. You know, it, again, it's not, you know, humans are going to be humans. Uh, communities work in particular ways. How that is mediated or how value is is transferred from marketplaces or how consumers get understand value, it depends on their technology. It's always going to change. So I think it's it's a real challenge. Just because Meta has called themselves Meta doesn't mean they own the Metaverse, just like Facebook did not own the internet. And so again, for me, I think so long as, you know, that's why organizations like Yuki exist, as well as lots of other tech sector trade bodies, which is to help navigate a path through and to make sure that priorities of any given government, whether that be around the protection of minors, making sure that people, people's privacy is protected, people's data is protected, that is fundamentally, you know, really important. It doesn't matter the technology, doesn't matter what we call these things, those things are important and they you know that's where we can help navigate these new ways in which there might be challenges to people's well-being or might be challenges to you know how we protect consumers or how we protect minors so let's let's move on the uk positive story for the gaming sector i believe we're what the second largest video game market in europe after germany we're in a- uh, Germany, yeah, sit back down, Germany. We're a little bit above you. Just like well, I take that back then. We are the largest <laughs> video game market in Europe. I stand corrected. So look, how do we, I suppose the question is, how do we stay there or how do we become even bigger compared to international peers? I mean, what is the, is there a missing piece of the puzzle you see from where government is acting at the moment where if we find a situation where the UK government actually settles down, where you would see that uh, interventions or supports for the sector would be helpful for cementing and Im- improving that position. You know, we, 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 there are very, very simple things that I think can be done. And I think one of them is actually confidence, you know, confidence and standing behind and recognising and talking more confidently as government about this jewel in the crown of the creative industries and the tech sector, which is called games industry. Um, I think that we, we as a trade body have a very good relationship with our sister trade bodies across the world. And they've all looked at the UK and the UK's games industry success uh, over the last 10, 15, 20 years with envy. And they want to emulate us. Canada put in place very, very helpful tax incentives which drained away a lot of our talent in the 2000s. We've regained our foothold in terms of talent because of targeted interventions that we've made in the UK. But actually, over the last 10 years, we've seen this real golden age because of targeted interventions like the Video Games Tax Relief, like the UK Games Fund. But those other countries and territories are now learning from us and uh, are putting in the same sorts of incentives, you know, and the one thing that I think we still have that a lot of countries don't have is that very rich mix of 
creative talent generally across the creative industries, storytelling, advertising, film industry, TV industries, and tech and innovation and that curiosity. You know, so much um, tech innovation has come from the UK historically. Um, I do think we've got that that mix and diversity of talent um, that people are or other countries would love to have, um, but that is achievable. You know, any country can start to grow that kind of talent ecosystem. I think we are facing now very, very strong competition from uh, international territories who have emulated our tax reliefs. They haven't quite been in place long enough for us to see, you know, the real impact of it. But I, I do get concerned that globally, everyone is also fighting for the same talent. Um, you know, programmers, AI developers, people who are in jobs that we don't even have names for this year, that we will have names for next year, they're in high demand. You see the film industry adopting much more uh, virtual production techniques since lockdown. Um, which is using Unreal Engine, which is a key game tool. And Unreal Engine programmers are, you know, like gold dust. So now we're seeing um, potentially competition from the creative sectors, as well as traditionally we've had competition for programmers, for instance, from fintech and the tech sectors. Um, fintech uh, pays quite highly, <laughs> it, it, it appears, for graduate programmers in certain disciplines. So, you know, I think those are the things where we are really interested in how government can um, uh, protect the interventions that have already been made, like VGTR, how we can improve video games tax relief. It is fundamentally one of the most important incentives that we have, um, but also the talent pool. And for that, we really need to take play-based learning, computational thinking really seriously, uh, as well as a sort of approach to STEAM that's combining arts and humanities subjects, not just pure tech and programming and coding. We need to appeal to a whole diverse range of young people to come into these disciplines and these sectors, not just um, people who want to be a computer programmer. So there are some real challenges ahead. Could I just ask, for fear of bringing up Brexit, I just want to ask about the interplay between the UK and the wider European ecosystem here and the, the, the gaming sector across, across the channel. Uh, I asked this because I was reading this morning about a European Parliament report pushing for an EU gaming strategy. Mm. And they talk about quite a lot of similar things that you've just mentioned there. So some elements around funding, but also a bigger role in training and, and schools. And a few other bits and pieces um, as well. And I just wondered as I as I read that, I mean, is there a virtuous sort of circle whereby there's that investment cross-pollinating between different parts of Europe, including the UK? Mm. Or is the U is the EU essentially a rival there, a rival for talent and a rival for funding? Um, how do how do you see that? Everybody is in competition for the same sorts of talent. Everybody. But the games industry is very, very, certainly in the UK, but also globally, it's very community-based itself. You know, it's very much, um, we're not in competition with each other. But when you do have talent shortages and talent uh, challenges such as now we don't have the free mobility uh, uh, movement of people across um, European nations as we did have, 
that is difficult. That does make it more difficult. You know, it's it's a it's a fact. We know that a lot of those issues have been masked by the pandemic. You know, no one was going anywhere for two years. Um, but the industry is very very global in its in its um, workforce. You know, nineteen one nine percent of the video games industry in the UK um, is 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 from the e was from the EU <laughs> was. So, you know, it's it's actually a significant portion and, and, and that's partly because yes, we need the programmers, we need those specific skill sets that perhaps we're not producing in, in, in high enough and diverse enough uh, way in the UK domestically, but we also need people with experience. We need people with the language skills because all our games are a lot of the our games are localized to the different markets in which they're released. We need that different perspective, lived experience, so that real kind of two-dimensional diversity infuses the creative product, the game itself, um, infuses the story that you're telling and the way that you're telling it. So, you know, we we are in, you know, we, we were, I've, I've read that report, we were kind of, you know, our sister trade body again in Europe was consulting on it, and there is enough room for everyone. There's a whole African continent, the whole of Latin America, where mobile games in particular are are the future there, where they've just got kind of burgeoning sectors growing there, you know, so, but we've also got potential players there. You look at the success of China, China's uh, games industry has been extraordinary. Um, and we've done a lot of work in, in, in the past when we've been able to get to China, taking companies there. You know, if you get a just a small slice of that market with your game, for instance, in the Chinese market, it's hugely successful for you as a company. So there is still so much potential. But of course, yeah, we don't want um, more generous incentives that are going to attract companies to set up elsewhere. We want them to stay in the UK. We want them to set up in the UK and we want them to create brilliant IP, original IP that is UK made and globally played. So I suppose when we think about the agenda, at least as much as we know it from Liz Truss's government, there's potentially some opportunities and some risks for you there. I mean, on the opportunities side of the ledger, there is this idea of uh, having higher rates of immigration. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll have to see what that actually means in practice, but potentially uh, that's something that could benefit the gaming sector, particularly if what twenty odd percent, as you said, is uh, was EU citizens. Um, on the other side, if China is an opportunity market, then the firmer, tougher position that Truss and her ministers and the Conservative Party are taking towards China may not necessarily be the most conducive for two-way trade uh, and investment. But anyway, Joe, um, just to say thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us today. Uh, that was uh, you know, a great ride through uh, anything from chat rooms uh, all the way to where we're going to go with the metaverse and the UK as the leading uh, market in Europe uh, for the gaming sector. So thanks very much uh, for joining me and for sharing your insights with everyone who's listened. I'm sure they're thrilled to have you as much as I was uh, on the podcast today. And for those who are listening, uh, the next In Conversation uh, will actually be a double In Conversation. Uh, we will have a conversation between myself and Benedict Evans on the regulation of the metaverse, followed by a similar conversation from our chairman, Lord Mandelson, and Melanie Dawes, 
the CEO of Ofcom, who will respond to a little bit to what Benedict and I have to say, but also to expand on Melanie's views on where Ofcom believes the metaverse should face regulation or otherwise. Thank you for listening.